The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 348 for Monday, August 15th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions. We do our best to answer your questions. We all share some tips with each other here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Hurtville, Connecticut. Oh, John Efron. You're there. <laughs> so are you. Yes, that's right. Uh, let's just start with Derek. Let's dive right in. Go. Derek writes. Hi, Dave and John. This is really a fish shake or even a fish shake with a snarl. I've recently been having trouble with sending mail in mobile me. It's been an intermittent problem since installing Lion. I tried resetting all my settings for the account and I still get the following message. Connections to the server smtp.me.com on the default ports timed out. Select a different outgoing mail server from the list below or try click try later to leave the message in your outbox until it can be sent. Uh, I contacted MobileMe chat support and they basically told me that MobileMe is not supported in Lion. Am I being unrealistic and thinking the world's most advanced operating system not supporting its own service is a bit daft? Uh, the solution to, given to me was to delete and reinstall my MobileMe account. I would very much like to avoid that as I have several gigabytes of data in several mailboxes that I would be forced to re-download if I were to proceed. Is there any other way you know of to get MobileMe to send mail from my Mac using Lion without deleting the account and reinstalling? Okay, so uh, let's make sure we understand what it is we're talking about here. Yes. Okay. MobileMe uh, has two different types of mail server. Actually, three different types of mail servers, but we're only going to talk about two of them here. There is the IMAP server, which is what you're using for all of your incoming mail, essentially. And then there is the SMTP server which is what you're using for all of your outgoing mail. Now, here's the thing. Uh, incoming mail and outgoing mail, because of that, are separate. So really all we're focused on here is the outbound mail server, uh, the SMTP server. Now, uh, the fact that... Mobile the or A... Yeah, it could be. Yeah. So, but the fact that mobile me support told you that it doesn't work in lion is kind of, well, frankly, kind of stupid. That's bogus. Yeah. It, that, that was a cop out that, that that's right. incorrect information. That's right. Yeah. Cause they're using standards based SMTP, right. just like any other mail provider for outgoing mail, mail that you're sending to the outside world. That's so right. yeah, that, that, that was not, I don't think that was a good, uh, uh, accurate statement. That's right. I, I agree with you. Uh, so Here's the thing. And, and, I, and it, he did send us the transcript. And so what mobile me support, one of the things they had him do was to go into mail preferences, accounts, highlight his account. And then in the account information tab uh, where it says outgoing mail server, SMTP, you can go in and, and choose from that drop down edit SMTP server list. And they did have him delete the SMTP server from here and re add it. Uh, and that didn't solve anything. And that's not really a surprise. Uh, also in the transcript to mobile me, he said that it worked in some locations more consistently than it worked in others. And what I think is going on is when you create a, an outbound mail server to something like smtp.me.com or really to anything, uh, 
under the advanced tab of that server, there are two options with how it can connect uh, and, and, and what ports on the mail server it's going to try and connect to. And by default, it says it's going to use ports 25, 465 and 587. Now, to be clear, mail doesn't need to go out on all three of those ports. It only needs to be able to connect to the server on one. By choosing this, you're saying let mail decide which port it's going to work on. I think that your problems, Derek, have nothing to do with Lion. I think that coincidentally, you're having something with your either your ISP or your at home or your provider at work or whatever's going on that's blocking mail to whatever the first thing is that uh, mobile me is trying and it's getting caught in a loop because of the way it's being blocked. Maybe it's not being blocked in a standard way. Uh, I, I ran into this a lot uh, for a while and now I choose use custom port and I recommend everybody do this, whether you're having trouble or not use custom port and set it to four sixty five, And that's assuming that you are using SSL or secure socket slayer to send your mail. That is the port that SSL should go over. A mail servers should accept it. And most importantly, it's typically not blocked like port 25 would be for outbound mail. In fact, you shouldn't really be sending mail on port 25. That's only for servers to talk to each other. Uh, 587 is for you to talk to a server, but 465 is the secure port to talk to a server. So uh, setting you choose use custom port there in mail and just type in 465. Uh, I think that's going to solve your problem, Derek. That that that's my theory on this. John, I'm, I'm with you, but, okay. but now you know I'm looking at my setup, and I I don't have these problems now. My setup, yeah, as you stated, it's it's account info and then advanced uh, on all of my accounts. Uh, the button that says use default ports twenty five comma four sixty five comma five eighty seven is checked. Okay, but I'm with you. So so and what I think is happening there is that it tries all of them it tries 25 and if that doesn't work then it tries the other two until it eventually gets one i think what may be happening in his case is maybe it's not smart enough to try the next one it's trying 25 and it, and it fails and it just gives up yeah it, it just depends on how it's being blocked some you know some providers will uh answer and, and insert like a bogus answer on port 25 to try and stop viruses and that sort of thing so I, I don't even let that be a, a, a factor because it's a variable and you don't really know what mail is going to do. So forcing it to 465 is, has worked flawlessly for me, it, it, including with mobile me's mail server. So, but it, and also with Gmail is how I, that's how I do things. So, yeah, I think they gave the answer they did because they, they want to encourage people to start thinking iCloud and move away from mobile me. But, but the, yeah, again, no, the I statement that they made is cop out. incorrect. Well, it, it works. You know, I upgraded and it works just fine. Mail app yeah. and Lion, Lion, get along just great. So right, and 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 you send and receive with your mobile me account in a on a fairly regular basis. Yeah, fairly. Yeah, good. Not that often, but but I've I've never gotten a failure message, and I'm set to that same you know, option. The, yeah. those three ports there. Right. So, I mean, it, it could also be that I mean, you know, mobile me. Uh, you know, has been uh, known various parts of the service to go up and down and up and down. Uh, and it could have been uh, maybe he just got a moment where their mail server was was not responding on any port. That, that's possible, although mm. it sounds yeah. like he's been having this yeah. issue more regularly and he was able to get it to happen when he was on the phone with Apple support. I mean, I think it's not just a one time thing. So, 
Mm-hmm. All right. Our first sponsor for this show is Drobo. And they have uh, changed their name. They are not data robotics anymore. They are Drobo. Uh, available, of course, at Drobo.com. Uh, Drobo provides external, they sell external storage devices. Uh, your computer sees it either like a plug-in hard drive, if you plug it directly into your computer, or as a, a network-attached storage server, if you happen to get one of the ones that just works on the network. What ha- What the difference is, is, If you were to get an external hard drive that was just a single hard drive, it could either get full or it could fail, in which case you've got to replace it or copy your data off and deal with all that stuff. With the Drobo, uh, they come with uh, anywhere four, five, eight, and even 16 drive bays inside the Drobo unit, and you just start pumping drives into this thing. And two cool things happen. Number one, you can just expand your storage by adding new drives. And if you've got the thing full and you decide you need more storage, take out your smallest drive and replace it with a larger drive and things get bigger. It's, it's, it, it's almost like magic. Uh, it also, because of the way it works, provides what's called fault tolerance, which means if one of the drives dies, you don't lose any data. Uh, it's storing the uh, the data in multiple places, essentially, and that allows you to to have that protection here in the office. I use uh, I use a Drobo FS and I love the Drobo FS. It's uh, it's an online or well, network attached five bay Drobo and uh, and it's great. I can set up different uh, different partitions on it, but the partitions, the size of the partitions can change. So it, it's really just allowing me to compartmentalize data without really deciding how much space I want to allocate. If I do want to allocate space, which say in the case of a uh, time machine destination, you do want to allocate space so that it doesn't grow any bigger than what you want it to be. Uh, then, you know, you can do that. So, uh, and the, and the Drobo FS uh, it really for, for listeners of this show, I, I think that the Drobo FS or simply the second generation, the four bay Drobo, those are going to be the two that, that you're looking at. And you, prices on those start at three ninety nine. You can check this out at Drobo.com or even DroboStore.com. Uh, and we'll put links in the show notes because that's how we work with our advertisers. And, uh, and then you start adding hard drives to it and off you go. Drobo.com is where you want to check this out. And, uh, it's, it's awesome. We love it. Uh, all right, Ivan, very interesting question. And I think we have an answer for you. Hi, John and Dave. This is Ivan calling from Michigan. Um, I had a question, uh, concerning iTunes and how to use it. Uh, first of all, I want to say you have a great show It's very informative and very entertaining. Uh, my question with iTunes is when I click on a podcast, I get a, and it turns blue, I get a little white dot in the blue line across that podcast that I can click for information. In the past, I used to be able to click on that information icon and a box would come up telling me what that podcast was about in detail. And then I can hit the down arrow, up arrow and go to the next podcast. Now it won't move. And the latest version of Snow Leopard and the latest version of iTunes under Snow Leopard running on a MacBook Pro 2009, 2.8 gigahertz, Core 2 Duo, um, with the latest version of Snow Leopard. 
Um, I, I'm wondering if this is a new change in iTunes or uh, I'm just not aware of the changes and how to make it scroll, how to make the information box scroll instead of having to select each podcast separately and then click on the icon instead of being able to scroll the box up and down. Thank you very much. I know it's kind of minor, but it seems important to me. It's part of my workflow. And thank you very much. And I appreciate your answer. No problem, Ivan. All right. So uh, nothing has changed with regards to this. However, uh, there is a step that you uh, are probably missing. And the way it works is this. If you're in a list in iTunes, now it, it can be a list of podcasts. It could be music. It could really be anything. And you click that little get info box. Uh, you will get a, a box up. And I, and I call this a modal box. It might not be entirely correct, but it's a box that's going oh. to... F- <laughs> It's got, it's not, it's, it's a box that's I'll, going to, I'll correct you in a moment. Okay. It's a box that's going to float over the screen. No, no matter what else you click on. Now, when you do that up pops the info for the podcast that you're on. And as Ivan correctly points out, if you move your arrow keys up and down, it does not change because the focus is on that box. But here's what you can do. You can click back on the main iTunes window. And again, this box floats over it because that's how it works. But now that you've clicked on the main iTunes window, your arrow keys will allow you to move up and down in the list. And as you do, the information box populates with the information of the currently selected um, uh, podcast. You you can do this in the finder, too. This is really handy. If you go uh, in the finder and choose uh, show if, if normally if you go to the file, if you highlight something and go to the file menu, and choose uh, get info. It shows you the info for that, but that info window is like a normal window and it doesn't ever change. It's just info for that. However, if you hold down the option key and choose show inspector, which takes the place of get info, uh, you will get this same sort of floating dialog box. And John's going to yell at me for calling it modal in a minute. So that's good. Uh, and then you can navigate around and this will stay floating, but it will show you the, the information of whatever is selected in any window or at least in the frontmost window in the finder. So that, that can be really handy. And it obviously works in iTunes as, as, um, as I've been asked about, but, but also works in the finder and, and perhaps even other places. So, so that, that's my theory on that. Uh, that's, that's how that works. So hopefully there's a tip in there for everybody. But uh, but John, go ahead and 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 I'm ready to be berated. Oh no! But, but the behavior is inconsistent. So first, I just tried that thing that you mentioned in the Finder, mm-hmm. and that's really cool. I didn't know about that because I initially did just the get info, and right. as you state that that window is there and it doesn't change if you if you change what's happening in the background. Right. But you know, I also noticed that I'm I'm going to call the some of these semi-modal. Okay. And now some, some people are really going to shake their fist because no, what I noticed in iTunes. So rather than clicking on that little info that brings up the dialogue. Yeah. And then clicking in the back. If you do uh, the same get info in iTunes, uh, you know, command I. Yeah. And that brings up a different window. That brings up a window that has all that has heaps of info about whatever you're looking at. Oh, not just the much, title. Well, that, and that's an editable window too, right? But that, but that, based on what I've seen, that is a true modal dialogue because that window is there. And if you try to scroll around in the background, it will not work. You can't select another window as the, as right. the active screen. Yes. Got right. It. So, so getting into to UI terminology, a true modal dialogue is one when that's up front 
you can do nothing else until you dismiss that dialogue. And that's the, Excellent that's why I call point. some of these other semi-modal is that they're still there, but they don't block other behavior. A true modal dialogue blocks any other activity until you get rid so, of it. So maybe better to call these floating windows and, and, and not, yeah, not dialogue like that because it's not really a dialogue. It's not prompting you for input. It's just showing you data. Okay, I, I'm with you right? on that. Maybe I don't know. No, you're right. No, I, uh, now that I think about it, yeah, dialogue is something that although it, has a way for the user to interact with it, which of course is true in the in this floating window in the Finder because you can change the name and change the open with settings and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. yeah, so it's you know it is what it is. It's a funky window, mm-hmm. is what it is. So that's a good one. So there's just that one little step that you, you need to introduce and yeah. then it'll, it'll do what you want. Maybe he, maybe they did change the behavior. No, I don't think they did. No? But, okay. but I think what might've happened is he might've had, he might've gotten used to having that window up and then navigating around in iTunes and doing whatever he was doing. And of course, if that's the case, then it does work that way because the, the focus is not on that window, mm-hmm. but the first time you open it, it is. So I can see where that could, you know, that could get confusing. Uh, all right, Andrew, Andrew writes, every time I swipe up with four fingers in lion for mission control, all of the windows stack on top of each other. Conversely, when I have the system preferences app open, mission control opens fine and the windows are tiled and not stacked on top of each other. I'm not sure if there's a fix for this or if it's just another bug that Apple will need to fix. It's really annoying that I have to leave system preferences open all of the time. So I thought I would email you guys. So this is very interesting. Uh, it, 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 he described it fairly well. But but again, what's happening is if you're in line and you do uh, go to mission control with whatever you set up, I think four finger swipe up is the default. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it shows you. All of your apps um, for that particular spaces type view, right? I mean, it's this whole new kind of paradigm for spaces. But without system preferences open on his machine, it's that same view. But instead of showing all the windows neatly kind of tucked in their own little spots on the screen, everything's piled on top of each other in a really ugly way. Mission control, as far as I can tell, doesn't have its own preference pane. uh, Sorry, preference file, John. I think... Like with many things that have been added to Lion, I think Mission Control's preferences are baked into the dock. Uh, I think that's what they're hanging all of this off of. So my my feeling would be quit all your apps, uh, go into home library preferences and kill the com.apple.doc.plist file. And then once you've killed that file, reboot your machine. And that way the dock restart, you could do go to the terminal and do a kill all dock, but uh, it's, it's safer it, for, for testing purposes and to know whether you've actually fixed it or not reboot and, uh, and then try it. Hopefully assuming the dock is the preference file that manages mission control. And that's where this, you know, kind of foobard preference is stored that maybe, maybe that would fix it. That's, that's my feeling. Thoughts, John. <laughs> I couldn't get it to do it. I, I, I tried. I tried holding down different keys, seeing if oh. this was, uh, you know, maybe I didn't get the right combination, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it's confused. Cause yeah, I, I stumbled across it accidentally. Yeah. One day as I just did a four finger up swipe and all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, what's this? Yeah. Oh, that's what it is. Okay. So I, I don't really use it that much. Right. 
Yeah, the good right. The good news, uh, Andrew, is that it does not. This problem does not recur on certainly on my machine. And as you're saying, John, it doesn't recur on yours. So so there should be a way to make it work for you. And that's hopefully buried in that that doc preferences file. Uh, all right. Greg has, uh, has an interesting little question. Hey, John and Dave, this is Greg in Houston, Texas. I've got a question about the upcoming iTunes match service. I'm an aging baby boomer, and I don't have any pirated music on my computer, but I do have crates and crates of old record albums in the garage. I'd like to use a digital turntable to download those to my computer if iTunes Match is going to recognize them. I guess my question is, will iTunes Match listen to the music similar to the way Shazam does and match them that way? Or is it going to look for some kind of digital identification in the file that would only be available for music that's been downloaded from a CD or purchased from iTunes store? Thanks a lot. This is where you cut me off. You got it. John, you want to uh, take this one? This is a good one. It is a good one. First off, I I appreciate the old school uh, aspect here of using those big CDs, analog CDs. (laughs) They were not compact. They were just discs. There was no C (laughs) in front of them, right? All right. So some of you may know there's this feature that they're going to be introducing called iTunes Match. And the claim is that it's going to go through your music library and somehow identify your songs and match them up and, and right with and then give you, and then the I, and then i think give you access to yeah if it's in the store it'll it'll uh, let you access that copy uh now i suppose there are you know issues uh you know if, if you've uh uh ripped it and not purchased it then i suppose there's a concern that yeah people who did not purchase the music could get access to it blah 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 so we won't go into that and i don't want to dismiss it you know you should you should never uh you know, you should buy your music. There's nothing wrong with ripping music. Oh, no, no, no. Right. I mean, oh, certainly not. Yeah. Yeah. So, and by by ripping, of course, we mean, uh, conventionally that means taking a CD and taking the contents and, and turning, you know, converting them into an MP3 on your computer. But, you know, as George point, or sorry, not George, Greg points out, um, it's possible that you can rip from other sources like an LP. So go ahead, John. Yeah. So here, so I did a bit of digging and, so Grace Note is a company that has some technology that uh, I believe is already incorporated in iTunes. And a lot of you may have seen this already. So what is, uh, they have a technology called Grace Note Music ID. Now it has a number of different aspects. Now I'm going to assume that all of these are going to be licensed for iTunes Match. And if they are, then I think the music that is ripped from the LP will be identified. LP standing for long playing, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> now that their their technology has two aspects to it. So one is very clever. Now I think this may be the kludgy way for him to go about it. Now, first off, CDs, music CDs, do not have any digital information in them identifying the songs. Right. They have the, okay. the song, but that's it. There's the uh, what they do have, though. So this is the first clever thing. And I I believe Grace Note acquired this. Someone came up with this very clever system called CDDB. Now, although the audio on a CD doesn't have any sort of, you know, text in it saying who the artist is or what the name of the song is. What each CD has is this unique characteristic in that it has a certain number of tracks and each track has a certain length. 
and all and this C- data, all CDs are right. It's all the same, right? Go ahead. And sorry. this data is unique enough. And so what CTDB is, is a big honking database of all of these track numbers and track lengths. And it's unique enough. Now, I think every now and then you may have two that are identical, in which case the, the software should ask you. But if you if this system sees, oh, 10 tracks and song one is this length and song two and song three, it'll say, oh, this is this CD. So let me pull down the artist's name and maybe some cover art and the, and the, and the title of each track. So that's how you get around the problem of this data not being embedded in the CD. So that's one form of the technology, and that's solely based on the number of tracks and the length of each track. And that, now one thing he could try to do... To be fair, that's go. how iTunes has done this for, oh, for yeah. a decade, right? When you and, and, a, and lots of other software, not just right. iTunes, but Windows Media Player. I think everybody had Every, licensed this technology. And it's really a, kind of a clever way to get around the fact that nobody thought, hey, why don't we incorporate this data into the CD itself? Right. Yeah. It <laughs> it's t- kind it's of a t- hack, t- but it's a clever hack. It is. And, it, and it t- it's why when you take a CD and plug it into iTunes to rip it, it just recognizes it. It, 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 you, the assumption could be made that this data was on the CD and that's how the computer knows, but it doesn't, it's actually going out to the internet, like just as John described. So yeah, that, so, but it goes further than that, perhaps for iTunes match. So one thing he could do is he could try when he rips it to try to replicate this data, but I think that would be a pain in the neck and he's probably not going to be able to get the, well, he could certainly get the same number of tracks, assuming it's a, the LP has the same number as the equivalent CD and try to get the lengths the same. But that, that's, that, that's, I think, way, much, way more trouble than it's worth. Now, the other aspect of the technology, so, so that's one aspect of their technology is just using the track links and the, and the, the number of tracks and the track links. But that won't help but, for iTunes match. However, right. Another aspect of music ID is something called stream identification. And this is looking at the audio. And, you know, I, I had never messed with these before, Dave, but the uh, the piece of the software that he mentioned, I think Shazam. Yeah. I tried it. I downloaded it over the weekend. Now they have a free version. Oh. Unfortunately, it's limited to doing five per month before they want you to buy it, which to me is kind of weird because I mean, it's already have ads in it and stuff like that. And uh, anyways, I was able to take this and first I took it and, and basically it just listens to what's happening. So I turned on my radio and, and I activated the software and it samples about 10 seconds of audio and it identified the song. Then I had a couple of music videos that I had on my, my computer somewhere, and I played those. Like I had an old uh, Bare Naked Lady song, or it was actually a video that they, they packaged with one of the early Macs. Um, old apartment. Uh, no, it was um, One Week. Oh, because really? Old week? Apartment was on the OS8, Mac OS8 uh, CD, believe it or not. Yeah, one week was on a, on a, on a future one. Right. But I, I even okay. played that, and Shazam identified it. And so again, it looked to be about 10 seconds of audio, and then it goes into a different type of... So this is... It, it's similar but different. So what it's doing is, is it's sampling the audio, and I think similar to the other technology, every song has a signature, a value. Now, the thing is here is that you can listen to the song at any point. I mean, I, pl- I played, right. you know, the middle of a song and it's still got it. So I think it's a, it's a more complex system. But assuming... Just to be clear to everybody, Shazam, this app that John's talking about is for iOS, not for the Mac. But, right. Uh, yeah. It's so, and, and it is cool. It's, and it's totally worth checking out for free. Yeah. 
Yeah, again, it limits you to five per month or five per whatever. But so assuming that the music ID that Apple that is going to be incorporated incorporates both of these systems or just one. I mean, it could just sample all the audio. It only it doesn't need a lot of it. Again, maybe five to 10 seconds. Then I would say and, and looking at the audio quality, I mean, I was using an iPhone to listen to something playing out of computer speakers. I'm going to guess that the audio quality coming from the LP is going to be good enough. So this system should be able to identify all of the songs. So my, my, my opinion is yes, this will be able to identify it. I, I wasn't able to get much detail, but much more detail, um, you know, as far as the specifics that are going to be in, in iTunes match, but, yeah. uh, but I think, I think it's a good bet and, and you're going to want to get, well, I don't know if you want to get it off of those. No, you want to get it off of those LPs. It's just easier to manage on the computer, right? Uh, well, he won't be able to. So what'll happen it, with iTunes match, from what I understand, it will match through either this method or like you said, one of a variety of methods. It will attempt to match your songs with what it has on the, uh, you know, on their server. And if it decides that there is a match, uh, one of two things will happen. If you have, they're going to have 256 K AAC files on their end, uh, because that's what Apple sells. Uh, if you have something that's the same or better quality encoding than that, then it will leave what you have. However, if you've ripped all your LPs at 64 or 128, uh, it's going to, I believe, and we'll see when this comes out, but from what I understand, it's going to go ahead and download and update your collection with better quality rips. Again, higher quality rips, higher bitrate rips, whether they're better quality or not is up to you uh, from Apple servers. So, you know, if your entire goal is to simply get Apple to allow you to have all the stuff that you've got on LP uh, accessible from iTunes match, then yeah, go ahead and do it at, you know, 64 K or something. I would, I would definitely do it stereo uh, because otherwise it might not match, but uh, you know, and, and don't do everything and then try to match it. Do one album, find your parameters that work, match it, get everything in sync and then go ahead and do, do all the rest. So that that's, that that's one, that's one aspect of this is that, yeah, you're going to, Apple's going to update you to better quality stuff. Again, better quality being their definition, not, necessarily yours but probably <laughs> uh you know one thing about shazam is you were talking about this john i launched shazam because i've never had a problem with it telling me i only have the free version i've had it for a long time uh and i've never had it tell me i can only tag you know five songs in any it's never limited me and so i dug in and i thought okay let me see what are what are you know what are the full features here and i dug in and it says hey uh We've given you unlimited tagging for being with us from the early days. Uh, and then there's some other updates. Yeah. So, hey, no, that's uh, that's just yet another argument, John, to uh, stay on the cutting edge. Yeah, because I'm looking right now. The dialogue that I see in front of me says you've reached your monthly five tag limit. Upgrade to Encore now to right. enjoy unlimited tagging and recommendations. So um, I may have to uh, maintain a backup of, of your copy so I could, I could research this. <laughs> further. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how, I don't know what they're using to decide. It's not clear how they know that I've been with them um, from the early days. I'm sure question. it's one of the data files that are stored on your iDevice somewhere. Well, but I've updated from iDevice to iDevice and it seems no, to right. know. I don't know. Yeah. It's a good question. I don't know that, you know, there are a number of ways you can do that, but uh, yeah. So that's, that's my punishment for being late to the game. That's mm -hmm. right. All right. Uh, sponsor number two is, uh, 
is is a new sponsor. They were first on last week, and we have them again. FreshBooks at uh, at FreshBooks dot com. I'm going to let listener Adam. We got uh, quite a few comments about uh, FreshBooks from people listeners that use it and love it. And uh, and Adam actually has clearly been using it for a long time. So we're going to let him tell you uh, kind of about his use case, and then I'll I'll wrap it up with uh, with some of the particulars. Hey Dave, this is Adam. You've been caught. Um, FreshBooks is a great product, but it's clear you don't know that much about it. And I just wanted to leave a message letting you know how helpful it's been for my business and give you a little bit more insight into what it can do. Um, I've been using FreshBooks for three years. I've had a uh, house call veterinary practice in San Francisco called Wandering Vet, uh, where I see cats and dogs in people's homes. And I'm able to take my iPhone and uh, create uh, estimates and invoice uh, customers uh, during the course of a uh, visit. Um, it's really great. Uh, FreshBooks has an API so that uh, all sorts of products can tie into it, and there is uh, an application on the iPhone called MiniBooks that uh, is a front end for uh, FreshBooks. So I'm able to take exam uh, findings during the course of a uh, visit and invoice the client and um, send them by email uh, the invoice and uh, tell them to pay it by PayPal. And uh, it's, it's amazing. They have connections to all these different gateways, but the PayPal business is the best because um, it's only 50 cents, no matter what my invoice charge is. So whether I'm charging them $25 for some medication or 600 for a uh, full workup, um, it's only 50 cents uh, to collect the payment rather than 3% or whatever else uh, any of the other gateways uh, charge. So um, it's a pretty amazing uh it's pretty amazing for that one reason alone. Um, but then additionally, um, their product is totally extensible and uh, you know, it allows me to have additional staff working on my uh, invoices. My technician can, uh, can log in and, and change things. And uh, I manage all of my inventory uh, through FreshBooks. Um, I track all my expenses some of which are recurring, like my cell phone and you know other things, like my utilities. Um, they come in automatically every month, uh, registered as expensed uh, items. And uh, but most amazingly, I uh, I've got tons of storage uh, from FreshBooks, and so in addition to uh, my clients being able to log into their individual password protected accounts and see previous invoices with my exam findings and such, uh, they also have the ability to look at the uh, documents that have been posted to their account. So if I take blood work or urine testing or uh, send off uh, biopsy to the lab. Um, the lab sends me uh, fax and my fax server turns that into a PDF and uh, I post it to their documents portion on, on FreshBooks and uh, it gives my clients 24, access, 24 hour access to their uh, medical records. So um, you know it's, it's a little kludgy uh, but not really. Uh, it does a purpose very well, like any generalized product, and I know you're a big FileMaker fan, um, I see this as a, a similar product in that vein. Um, it can work for a lot of different businesses in a lot of different ways. Uh, they've got tons of things that, you know, that I won't even use, um, but that I know that others do. Um, one of the things that I do use that's very helpful is they have uh, reports uh, that let me summarize uh, all sorts of things, but for example, I can also uh, figure out my my tax sales uh, burden at the end of the year and, and file my uh, to the Board of Equalization in California uh, really quickly because I've got a report that tells me all the sales tax I've collected. I also can generate um, 
all of my payments and uh, expenses and uh, from that derive uh, most of the information I send off to my accountant for taxes at the end of the year. And in fact, uh, last year, or maybe the year before, whichever, um, I had to uh, pay some contractors and uh, Outright, which is another product that uh, that does taxes that works with the uh, back-end uh, FreshBooks API, they were able to automatically, from everything I'd been entering in FreshBooks, uh, send out the appropriate tax forms for my contractors. So um, it's really cool. Um, it, uh, it doesn't cost much, and it does a lot. It's fully extensible, and it plugs, it plugs in with all these other products. And uh, you know, I don't think they need to give you a birthday cake. Uh, I think this product uh, stands on its own. But uh, what a plus. Anyway, I uh, thought you should know this. Bye. Thanks, Adam. That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, FreshBooks indeed at FreshBooks.com. Uh, when you sign up, it's free to sign up. And in fact, if you keep a limited number of clients, it's actually free to use, but uh, certainly free to get going and test it out. And when you sign up, they ask you, they want to know uh, that these ads are working, right? And so uh, when you sign up, put in where you heard it, which is, of course, Matt Geekab. They appreciate it. Uh, John and I really appreciate it. And uh as a uh, as a benefit for doing that, you get entered into a drawing for a free birthday cake. And it doesn't even have to be your birthday. And we all love birthday cake. It's good, right? So anybody that's using invoicing in your business, try out FreshBooks. See how you like it. FreshBooks.com. With that, we move on to... I think we're going to go to George here, John. And let's see. George writes. He says... Uh, I've had a lot of problems with Wi-Fi since updating to Lion. I thought I had sorted things out with the help of Apple's discussion forums. But what happened next was under the icon for Wi-Fi at the top of the screen that looks like a fan. It went to an outline. And when I clicked on it, it said Wi-Fi, no hardware installed. I tried starting the iMac with Super Duper and that had the old uh, Snow Leopard 10.6 on it. But the problem was still there. I then downloaded the recovery disk assistant from Apple, but after running, the problem is still there and there are still a lot of other people with the same problem. Any ideas? Okay. So, you know, when hardware goes missing, uh, and especially the fact that you're seeing missing hardware under a previous uh, version of the operating system, I, I have to think that that's not uh, a lion specific issue. It's possible that something in Lion caused it to go missing, but it's offline. I mean, it you know, if Snow Leopard, uh, yeah, Snow Leopard's not seeing it. Ten point six isn't seeing it. You're, you know, the hardware is not registering itself. So to me, that means that you've got to do some. Uh, it either needs to be repaired totally from a hardware standpoint, or more likely, something needs to be reset, and that would either be SMC or sometimes called power management or. Uh, or possibly both the PRAM uh, and we'll put links in the article in the uh, show notes, links to the knowledge base articles that'll teach you exactly how to do this on your computer. But, uh, but that mm. would be my thought is, you know, if the hardware is showing as missing, uh, especially in two different versions of the OS, I don't, you know, I don't think that's a lion specific issue, but re but for the, for anyone that ever experiences this, you know, before you just take it in uh, and assume the worst, try resetting power management or SMC, uh, or, and the PRAM and links will be in the show notes. And of course, right here in the AAC, uh, courtesy of uh, Michael Johnston of the, we have communicators podcast. So thanks, Mike. So uh, any, any thoughts on this, John? Not on this one. I'm with you. I, uh, 
Yeah, I thought we had a question about it. It, it was a, a different Wi-Fi problem. But no hardware installed? Yeah, to, to me, that would either be, I don't know, either a damaged kernel extension, perhaps. Yeah, but even that, missing. It's, it's not going to, I mean, it, it, two different OSs aren't going to suffer from a, a, a file being bad. That's one OS or the other, right? I mean, they're not related. Different drives, different yeah, installs. Yeah, but if it says no hardware installed, then yeah, something, something came loose or, or failed. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, if it says that. Yeah, because yeah, I've never seen that message. So could that, be, that, could to be me, the, that's pretty clear. Could be a USB thing, right? I mean, I, I, I think this is all connected to the USB bus. Maybe not, though. I, I forget. I, honestly, I forget if if Wi-Fi is how how integrated that is with the with the Mac. But um, yeah, it might it might not be part of the USB bus. Um, um I don't think I don't. I don't think it is. I mean, the yeah. only other thing is in the network system preference. I mean, you could whack the Wi-Fi entry in the list there and try to add it again. Oh, I don't know. Huh? You know, that's a really good idea. That's always something to try. If you ever have a problem with any network device and I'm looking right now, so my mini, I see ethernet firewire, which you can use for uh, TCP IP networking though. I never have uh, airport and, and Wi-Fi I see there. So, uh, yeah, no, I have them. Uh, the way I set up my systems is I have only one interface active. So all the other three are set to inactive just because I've had issues in the past of having multiple active. But yeah, that uh, that there could be a deep seated problem and maybe that'll fix it. That yeah. That's the only suggestion I could give from a, a software point of view. I like that. That's a good idea. All right. Yeah, I've had to do it once or twice. And I don't know. Do we have on our agenda? The- no, you you misread the. Uh, you saw that we were talking about Wi-Fi issues in Lion, and you thought it was about something else. So let's talk about this something else because you've had you've had a Wi-Fi issue in Lion, not a hardware related issue, but but a software kind of a different thing. So, well, I thought we had it in our mailbag too, and and I've seen a lot of people mention this. So maybe I'll just uh, maybe it was maybe, in the maybe- premium mailbag. It could have been, or, you know, I think I've been talking to a few different people on Twitter. So here is the symptom. Okay. So normally what should happen, and and I I typically do this with my MacBook Pro, is you put the machine to sleep, you wake it up, and it should, if it's on Wi-Fi, it should connect. If you have it set up to do so, it should connect to the last base station that it saw. Right. I am noticing now every once in a blue moon, this will not happen. And this, this started happening under snow leopard, but I just kind of dismissed it. And usually the way to fix it would be you go to the Wi-Fi or uh, now it's called Wi-Fi. They used to call it airport, but they now renamed it in lion is you go to the icon in the menu bar, you turn it off, which I guess turns off the hardware, you turn it on and it re it, it begins the search again for the last, uh, for your preferred base station. And then it connects. They did something in Lion which made it worse because now, and, and I'm not the only one that had this problem, but now what happens is that if it does not unwake, find your last base station, this turn off and turn on strategy does not work or it, it severely delays it. It'll eventually get it, huh. but it's almost like it's not paying attention. And if you say turn off and you, and you go to the system preference pane or the network preference pane, uh, it says it's on and it's like, well, no, with the menu, I told you to turn off. Why do you in this other part of the OS say that it's on? And I see looking in, I think there's something wrong with, with their driver 
Because, you know, I, I looked at this, what happened, I looked in the console and the last time it didn't work was actually today at about 2.30. So I looked in the console and I see it around 2.27. So I look at what happens when the machine wakes up. And one of the first things I see, so these are messages that come from the kernel. These are typically low level things that have to do with networking and memory management and disk and then all that stuff here. And it says, it has a few messages here. So one, it says wake reason, EC space lid zero. Well, that means, oh, you open the lid. Okay. That means I should wake up or that's why I'm waking up because you opened me up. And then there's a few other messages. And then it said airport link down on EN1. And I'm like, huh? Reason four disassociated due to inactivity. I'm like, well, no, I just woke you up. You should be looking for something, not shutting it down. Huh. And then it has a couple of other messages on EN1, which EN1 is the uh, Unix code for the airport interface. And then it says, oh, okay, uh, 802.11d country code set to X0, supported channels, one, two, three, four, blah, 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 which shows me it, it's trying, but then nothing happens after that. It's like it, it, it's starting to do what it, what it should. And is there a, and these is are there the messages a fix for this? no okay the only fix that i found is turn off well either put the machine to sleep and then wake it up again and sometimes it'll get it or while the machine is on turn off you know go to the wi-fi menu turn off wi-fi yep wait a moment and then turn it on again and then it initiates the search again but more but there seems to be a delay in there so is so again, it, I am not the only person that has noticed this Wi-Fi problem. Is it related certain, to updating from Snow Leopard? It, it happened in Snow Leopard 2. Oh, okay. But it's worse. But when it fails, the recovery process is, is worse. Huh. And then it doesn't seem to listen to when I say, turn off the Wi-Fi hardware, please, and then turn it back on. And maybe it's tried, just this model of machine. I have don't you know. tried wiping out the, the airport hardware and putting, you know, putting a new one in similar to, I mean, what you suggested? The thing I suggest, suggested? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, try of course that. not. Yeah, try that and see what happens. I will try that. And um, maybe wipe out the list of all the Wi-Fi networks that it has too, right? I mean, exactly. So the suggestion I would give, and, and to the the person who wrote in, I think I suggested this or was about to. I, I don't know if I answered them yet. Yep. So yeah, as you suggest, one thing to do would be to look at that list of preferred networks and prune anything that's not necessary. I would delete them all, actually. I'll I, I, get rid of them all and start fresh. Yeah, maybe I, I'll do that. You know, I, I, uh, I have a theory, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, because and I've been talking go. to a lot of people here, especially here at TMO. There's some wackiness with machines that have been updated from Snow Leopard to Lion. Uh, there, there's more, and, and there's always going to be some of that, you know, there's going to be fringe cases or whatever, but, but more and more I'm hearing from people that are having, you know, weird slowdowns doing, you know, something on a machine that upgraded from snow leopard to lion versus a machine that just came with lion and it does it fine. So I, I think there's, there's some funky stuff happening. Hopefully ten seven one, which presumably is, you know, not far off, uh, will mm. address some of these things, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think uh, I think there's some some funkiness with the upgrade process. Yeah, I'm with yeah. you. And and the other thing I may want to consider now, unfortunately, it seems that most of the Wi-Fi scanners that I have uh, do not seem to be line compatible. Oh. I stumbler crashes shortly after launching it, and I and I tried one. Uh, Did you try Air Radar one. from Coingo? Uh, I don't think I tried that one yet. All right. And, and Kismac, which is another one that I actually wrote an article on, that one is not updated for Lion either. So uh, I don't have that installed in this system. Huh. And I'm so not, I, I'm I not wonder if they... Here. So, okay. On this one, yeah. 
So I don't, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have to try that. But the other thing I was thinking of is maybe changing the channel because I haven't done a scan in the neighborhood in a while. I think right now I have my time capsule hard-coded to channel one because that was the uh, least uh, congested in right. the neighborhood. Right. And I may want to reconsider that. Maybe look at either six or 11 and see if uh, that'd be a better choice it or set it to automatic. You know, actually, let me ask you this. Do you know this? So, so in the... Airport utility, you can either hard code a channel, as I mentioned, or there's this automatic setting. I'm not quite sure what automatic does. Does it? Yeah, it. Um, I did some testing with this a number of years ago, and what it does is it starts at channel six. And if it ah. doesn't see anything else at channel six, <sighs> it stays there. Oh, so it's kind of smart. Yeah, it'll it'll. So look. it looks. To, so, oh, OK. All yeah. right, maybe I'll try that. Yeah, but I have seen it, you know, I, I have also seen it jump to other channels if there's, you know, if it if it feels there's something that's going to contend with it on uh, on the channel that it's chosen. But it, it almost always seems to start with six. So. Uh, OK, well, I'm glad I brought it up and you could give me some good advice. So. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Including my own. <laughs> right. Including, well, you know, that's what we're here for. It looks like Air Radar was just updated, uh, I think, over the weekend, maybe. Uh so, and, and it has been updated several times this month. So I, I think I'm going to, it doesn't say that it's lion compatible, but the fact that there've been three updates in August, uh, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and say that it is, I mean, their, their, their release notes say this version is compatible with 10.4 or later. So I'm going to have to assume it's going to work with, uh, with lion. Yeah. Based on what I saw, they definitely changed something with the API that gets to the, uh, yep some Wi-Fi hardware because yeah I, I thought iStumbler would be working great and then 30 seconds in it, it consistently uh, crashes interesting all right uh, let's see where are we here you know let's go uh, we've got a bunch of time machine related questions and they're all kind of related to similar things so we're going to kind of walk from one to the next Anand writes uh, I have a new uh, MacBook Air running Lion of course with 128 gig SSD uh, I have a 2010 Airport Extreme with a two terabyte Western digital hard drive connected to it via USB. I want to set up time machine backup for each of uh, my computers. Oh, here's another one uh, on the same Western digital drive. Is this possible? And if so, what should I do? OK, uh, so we're going to. um you know, let's leave that question hanging and let's play Dave's question. And then we'll kind of wrap the two together because this is they're 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 intertwined. Hey, John and Dave. Dave and John. It's uh, Dave Cook from uh, beautiful Ulster County, New York, Socrates, Woodstock area. How are you guys? Quick question. I have a feeling that I may have heard uh, this topic come up before on MGG, but I can't fully remember, and I just haven't uh, dug deep into the archives. And I've been Googling it a little bit and haven't really come up with much as far as a solution. But uh, my uh, wife's uh, time machine uh, drive took a dive and uh, is not even formatable anymore or erasable. So I got her a new drive, did a fresh uh, plugged-in backup of Time Machine, and it all went uh, swimmingly. And but I wanted to, I wanted to ultimately stick it, uh, hang it off of the um, of our Airport Extreme, so she doesn't have to think about it. I just did that for someone else, and it's working great. Um, but I started the other backup that um, that I did for this other person. I started as a wireless backup um, off their Airport Extreme, and and it's been fine. 
this one I started plugged in because my wife has a whole bunch, uh, whole bunch of stuff on computer than this other person did, um, and I didn't want to have it go on for days over the, uh, over Wi-Fi. So I did the backup plugged in, then I plugged it into my machine. Uh, it shows up everywhere. Everything's great. I could access it. I'm sorry, plugged it, plugged it into the uh, the uh, yeah the extreme base station, and it shows up on all our computers. I could go into it, get everything get anything I need off of it, but Time Machine wants to start a backup from scratch, and I'm sure you saw this coming. So is there any way to not have to do that and to just have it pick up and update the backups um, through the extreme uh, from this point on? If I have to start again over the air, I will, but uh, I'd rather just start updating. So I hope you guys are uh, enjoying the last uh, heat wave of the summer, at least it is here in New York. And uh, go ahead and cut me off. All right. So this actually uh, gets kind of interesting. And we even we even took a little break here to to better research this because, frankly, it's weird. Uh, so here's what happens. Um, and, and both Anand and Dave are going to deal with this problem. Anand kind of uh, he's asking us before the fact and, and Dave after the fact. Time Machine stores backups in one of two ways. If you're backing up to a drive that's connected directly to the computer via USB, Firewire, or eSATA, if it sees it as a locally connected disk, what will happen is Time Machine will back up to a folder on that disk, and that's it. The problem is, if you then take that disk and move it to uh, another computer, say, uh, that is going to be your backup store, right, but you want to do your first backup directly because it's much faster you're gonna have a problem because when computers when time machine backups backs up over a network it backs up to a sparse bundle on the disk uh and and there is no checkbox to tell time machine hey back up to a sparse bundle locally so that uh when i connect it to a network drive it still works there's no way but if here's the weird Here's the observation I have. Dave. Let, me, let me finish this one thought here, Go. John. Okay. If you were to back up to a networked drive first and then connect to your Mac, Time Machine would still happily populate that sparse bundle even over USB or Firewire. Right? So the trick is creating that sparse bundle and making absolutely certain that Time Machine is happy with the way that that sparse bundle is created. And, and we've got a link. We, we've got instructions for creating that. So we'll put those in the show notes. Now, John, go. Because you and I suspect that there's a way to do this, because if you look, Dave, at the way this is stored, so if it's, if it's a drive that's connected directly, so for example, I have a drive connected via FireWire 800 to my Mini, and I see a folder called backups.backupdb. Yes. Now, of course, as you pointed out, if you do this the other way, what will happen is you'll get a sparse bundle. But you know what's in that sparse bundle? <laughs> well, there, there's, there's a, there, in the sparse bundle, there is a disk volume called backup of computer name. And then, is it a backups.backupdb folder, John? I think that, that that's where I was getting. Okay. But the last time I checked, so, so there is a, yeah, so you're right. So, but, but there is a similarity between the two. So one would think if you, if you have some mojo that you could get this to happen because the structure of the data is essentially the same. Well, yeah, but somewhat not, similar, but, but not exact. Well, no, it is similar, but the, the, but don't let that, 
make you think that you can simply copy. Oh, no, no, no. In, in Dave's case, right? He wants to take data that's already been saved in this folder based format and move it to sparse bundle format so that he can hang this drive off of the airport extreme. Now that he's got the first big, long, huge backup done. It's a totally reasonable use case. Uh, and I believe super duper can do this. And we've got another link that we'll put in the show notes for you, Dave, and for anybody that, that wants to make this move with it, a pre-existing backup that you have to create the sparse bundle in a very specific way. And then you can populate it with the data from that backups.backupdb folder. But you got to be careful because, because here's the thing that folder has uh, time based backups. Uh, it has folders for each time based backup. So if you're on a normal time mm -hmm. machine mm -hmm. schedule, it's got folders for every hour for the past 24 hours and then folders for every day for the past week and then every week for the past month and every month for the past whatever until you don't have any more space. The trick, though, is every one of those folders, it looks like is complete full backup, but it's not. It's they're all it, they're, there's not mult. It is, except there's not multiple copies If a file hasn't changed. There's only one copy of that file on the disk. And and they use something called um, uh, hard symbolic links to point all the, the, the pointers of that file to that file. Uh, in one place. So you've got to be really careful about how you move this data around. Cause if you know, if you copied it, it would copy, you know, potentially hundreds of copies of that file. Cause the finder's not smart mm -hmm. enough to just move those, those sim links. So, um, but there's two articles that are going to help. And, uh, and, uh, but, but if you want to make life easy for yourself, this is not the way to do it. The, the easy thing to do is to do your first backup over the network and all ensuing backups over the network. And then that way you're not going to have a problem except wireless backups potentially are going to take a whole lot longer than, you know, direct connected. But if that's the only option, just, you know, go away for the weekend, enjoy your uh, whatever. I don't know. It'll do it in the background. So just make sure you don't turn the computer off and it should, it should be all right. Yeah. Uh, you know, whenever, uh, whenever I've done my initial backup yeah. on the portable. Yeah. I do it via gigabit Ethernet. <laughs> right. But if you've got a MacBook Air and you haven't purchased a uh, the Ethernet right, connection right, kit, right, right. you have to do it wireless. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no other unless you want to go through all these steps, then you can plug it in at USB and do it locally to the sparse bundle that you create yep. and all that. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we've got those two articles uh, and, and Michael Johnston, uh, we will email those to you right now, in fact, so that you have them uh, so that they will automatically have been in the AAC for uh, for the rest of you. All right. Uh, now, Brian uh, writes, can you recommend a way of repairing corrupt time machine sparse bundle files? I recently had a time machine backup failure. Time machine indicated that the backup was corrupt and it wanted to recreate my backup file and erase the existing backup. Uh, I tried to use the FSCK command from the terminal as I found in an article. And although it appeared to repair the sparse bundle file, the problem remained when I reconnected the drive to my airport base station and ran time machine again. I'm using a US drive, USB drive plugged into my airport base station. I believe that this approach is uh, not supported by Apple, but it has worked successfully up until now. Any suggestions as to how to fix this problem would be appreciated. You know, okay, so here's the thing. I have a time machine and I have run into this problem countless times over the last, whatever it is, mm -hmm. three years since the time machine, uh, the time capsule came out. 
And there is, I have been unable to use FSCK or any other utility to repair the sparse bundle to a level where time machine is happy to back up to it. I can repair it and get data off of it. I can repair it and put data back on, but manually, but not once time machine has decided that this sparse bundle is dead. It's dead. I, I have not been able to revert its decision on that. Huh? Yeah. Cause you know, I think I've had at least one occasion where I could take the sparse bundle. Now it's funny. So the article that was referenced, we'll, we'll link to it just, yeah. just for kicks. The, the author says, don't use this utility to repair the sparse bundle, which is weird because from what I recall, when I did have this problem, now the thing is, if you do take a sparse bundle and you drag it into this utility, you will get the option to verify or repair. Right. And I think in at least one situation, now the thing is, yeah, this utility is not the, the best but I think I just got lucky is that it was minor damage, but it was able to repair the sparse bundle and I was able to use it from that point forward. But here's some general advice. Now the sparse bundle is just a big old womp and file. Now the thing is if you have a time capsule, then they give you an option in the time capsule where you can actually archive that file. And what you do is you take the time capsule, you connect the drive externally and you say, Hey, take this file and write it to that external drive. Or you could manually do that. I, I don't see why you couldn't. Yeah, right, right. And, and I think he got back to us saying, you know, that's that's uh, probably not a bad idea to, uh, yeah, never have a single point of failure. So every once, once in a while, I'll back up my sparse bundle using the uh, the airport utility uh, to just, uh, and yeah, it's essentially just copying that file to another drive. So I don't know. I, I think I may have to do that now because, you know, I'm seeing, and I don't know if, again, it's the upgrade to Lion or what, but I'm seeing it saying indexing backup a lot more often than it has in the past. And some people have suggested that means that it's time. Either the drive is getting wonky or, or yeah, the, 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 the file is starting to get corrupted. Cause I don't know why it even says indexing. <laughs> right. Right. Unless the, the file is getting too complex or, or I, I don't know. Yeah, I still got plenty of space left. Well, no, I got about half the amount. I think I got a one terabyte. I think that's your. I think that's your problem. You got your backup has grown so. You know, remember it's all these sim links pointing around, and I. I think it gets really convoluted. No, actually, I'm looking here. Available five hundred nine gigs of nine nine eight point oh six. So it's only about half full. Well, that's what I'm saying. Is it ever hasn't ever had to prune. Right. So it's just constantly filling and filling and filling. And it's gotten to be yeah. this sprawling mess inside that sparse bundle. Yeah. I may want to may want to back up that file. And maybe I'll maybe I'll start fresh. Yeah. And then a week a week later, you can blow away the, uh, the backup of it. Right. You don't you don't really need all that old data, do you? I mean, it's good yes, to have I- it. <laughs> it's good to have it when, while while you're doing the next backup because, like you said, you don't want to be caught, you know, with no backup. But, uh, but what yeah. if I need that one file that is years old that <laughs> that you deleted? No, right. I mean, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't delete anything, so it's always just there. I'm having yeah. problems with my SSD drive though that that Runcore mm-hmm. drive that I put in my my MacBook Pro. This new iMac can't come soon enough. I'm it's I'm I'm limping along here. So anyway, uh I'll, so we'll talk more about that later. Our next sponsor for this show is a returning sponsor and boy are we glad to have them back. Audible. audiblepodcast.com/macgeekcab is the place to go. Audible has audiobooks. Books on tape, if you will, but they're not really on tape. They're uh, they're on your computer. They're on your iPod. They're on your iPhone. Here's the thing. 
you know, uh, I had an Audible account a long time ago. Uh, I, oh, I still have an Audible account, but it, I, I hadn't, uh, I had let it lapse, right? But um, when Lisa and I drove out to Super Bowl, that fish festival, you know, we knew we were going to be in the car for like eight hours. And I thought, oh, great. I'll get an, an Audible, you know, account and sign up. And so I downloaded the Audible app to my iPhone and uh, was able to log into my pre-existing account. All the books that I had previously purchased were there. Uh, I wanted to get uh, some new books. So I signed up for a new account. I wish I'd known that, uh, that you know, they were coming back at the time because uh, maybe I would have gotten part of your deal that you're going to get, which is your one free book. Uh, so, uh, but I didn't get that. So I, I bought some books and we, uh, we enjoyed some comedy, some George Carlin, uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff is great for long drives for, for me. Uh, both of my kids now are actually reading, uh, Ender's game. And it was funny last night, my cousin, uh, I was over in Maine and he had a long, he and his wife had a long drive across, uh, across the, the couple of States. And, uh, when they got out of the car, they say, oh yeah, we're, we're totally freaked out because we've been listening to, uh, to Ender's game on tape. And, uh, and I, I couldn't think of a better way to, and they say on tape, but of course they were using audible too. Uh, I couldn't think of a better thing to start with. If you, even if you've read it, uh, it's a great, great story. Uh, so it's a, it's classic sci-fi, but, but so much more than just sci-fi. So I highly recommend, uh, going and checking out Ender's game and getting that as your free book. You can do that at audiblepodcast.com slash Mac geek gab. Uh, iTunes will pull down all your audible stuff. As I said, there's an iOS app that'll pull directly to that. So you don't even have to sync through, uh, through iTunes or anything. It's just right there. And, uh, and it just works so well. So I, I really, really, uh, really think you're going to, going to like it. And you have, uh, there's no risk. You, you do have to sign up for an account. You do have to give them your credit card, but, uh, but, uh, y- as long as you cancel within 30 days, there's no, uh, no obligation. Hopefully you'll like it and actually keep using it. But, uh, but you get the first month and your first book free. And even if you cancel, Everything that you got stays with your account. You can access it even years later, as I uh, as I found out, uh, you know, like I said last month. So check it out. This is uh, audiblepodcast.com slash Mac Geek Gab. And uh, and the book I recommend is Ender's Game. I'm sure you've read Ender's and, and many of the other ones in the series. Yeah, John. Years ago. Oh, it's time to revisit them, man. It's good stuff. My kids are reading it and now I'm totally, I totally want to get back into it because my daughter's been asking me, she's like, Oh, so we're at this point where, you know, Ender met Petra. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's right. So, so anyway, audiblepodcast.com slash Mac geek gab. It's time to go into some of the tips that we have for all of you. Uh, starting with Craig, Craig back in uh, show three forty five had a problem where he could not save Safari bookmarks. And he says, I'm just catching up on my episodes. Uh, When I tried saving Safari bookmarks to another folder, uh, I tried everything you suggested. That didn't work. So I thought about the caches and I loaded up trusty old Onyx. I went to the cleaning tab, the internet. I left everything that was currently ticked, checked, and then clicked execute. Once that finished, I opened Safari and boom, it works like a dream. So, Onyx uh, huh. to solve that, which we like. I thought I said, maybe I suggested maybe we someone did. else. We may, we may have suggested that. Even it was now. an offbeat suggestion. Yeah. No, I, I think I identified. Yes. Yeah. So here are where bookmarks are stored. That's right. That's right. And it was a yeah. P list file and it was a cache, a cache directory. Yep. 
Yeah. No, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that every, every now and then some of these oddball. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> suggestions work, but um, no, it's no that's great that a, a dirty cash would cause that. Huh? I know. I know. It's amazing. All right. Uh, and then uh, we kind of offhandedly mentioned back in, in uh, the last show, 347, that someone was having trouble getting that, that click to flash did not work in Lion. And uh, Justin writes, uh, Michael Johnson noted that Safari 5.1 does not work with WebKit plugins, such as click to flash. Uh, at first, I was confused since I am successfully using click to flash on Safari 5.1. Upon further research, it turns out that there are two versions of click to flash. Unfortunately, the first Google search result still points to the older version, which is implemented as a plugin. I don't think the plugin has been updated in quite some time. Someone else has taken the idea and rewritten it as a Safari extension. At first, it was also named click to flash, but now it is known as click to plugin since it also works with Silverlight, Java and more. The extension can be found uh, at a link that he provided that we will send along uh, and put in the show notes. So excellent stuff. That's, uh, you know, that's one of those things. I know I, I, uh, I, I talk about blocking ads being a, a bad thing, but, uh, but, Click to flash. You are welcome to use click to flash at, uh, at MacObserver.com. We do not consider that blocking ads. We tell every advertiser you shouldn't be using flash. A lot of people block it. It causes browsers to crash. Uh, so, you know, you, you have our blessing to go ahead and use click to flash that we don't, that we don't, uh, we don't count anything against you. In fact, you're, you're in good company with many, many of us here. So, uh, all right, cool stuff found John. You ready? We love cool stuff. Found. Mm -hmm. Felix writes in says an app. I cannot live without as I have two Macs being controlled from one keyboard and mouse, uh, although with their own dedicated displays is teleport by Abisoft. Basically it eliminates the need for a KVM or a keyboard video mouse switch or the need for screen sharing via the finder or any other way so that you can just drag your mouse from one screen and it will appear on the slave machines desktop as if it is a connected monitor of the master machine. Bear in mind, it will not replace a system where you need to share a single display between two machines, but if each has their own display, it's really great and rock solid in my experience. Uh, and so it's called teleport. It's donationware. That's pretty cool. I can see some uses for that. If you've got two machines at your desk doing different purposes and you just want to be able to move back and forth with the same keyboard and mouse, that's pretty awesome, actually. Uh, all right, John, you've got some cool stuff found. You found, uh, well, go. You know, I got not one, not two, but three. All right. Even though there's one on the list here, the other two are very quick. So the first one, I noticed this when I was connecting remotely from my MacBook Pro to my Mini. Now, as you know, one of the things when you click on a machine that's on the network and has certain services installed is screen share. So I clicked on screen share and I noticed an extra button because before there only used to be two buttons, but now there's an extra button provided that you enable this feature in your, I think it's the account screen, Dave. Okay. Or no, users and groups. So if you go to users and groups now, one of the features that we mentioned in the past is that you can associate your account with an Apple ID. Well, apparently if you do that, then screen share gives you an additional option, which is using an Apple ID. Very cool. Neat. That is cool. <laughs> and actually, when you click on that, it just shows the, the so here it just shows my uh, Apple ID. It doesn't even show the password. Now, what? That's kind of why weird. would why would that matter? I mean, here here's my thing, right? You have to associate the Apple ID with a user account on the Mac 
that not only you're connecting from, but presumably the Mac that you're connecting to just the fact that you have an Apple ID doesn't mean that the other Mac's going to let you in. You've got to, you've got to uh, approve that. And to my knowledge, the only way you do that is by associating it with a user account. So is this just in case you forget your user account credentials and you can log in with your Apple ID instead? I mean, it doesn't, it w- what would be cool is if you could say, look, allow these four Apple IDs to log in, but just take control of the <clears throat> screen, not give them user accounts and assign all this yeah, other yeah, stuff. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure of the benefit yet, but there's some funky things in screen sharing in lion, you know, John, you can, and I love this because we have a computer at the house that the family shares and we all use fast user switching and multiple users on it. So if during the day my daughter was on it, say, uh, I couldn't with snow leopard, I couldn't log in and do anything in my account, but now I can, because when I connect, if my daughter is logged in, it'll ask me, do you want to see what she's doing and, and interact with that session? Or do you want to create your own session and use your own account? Uh, and it does, it shows me my own screen, but it doesn't, I mean, it, it would impact her in so much as it would slow her down. If I started doing something, you know, that, that slowed down the computer in general, but otherwise she doesn't know because, you know, I'm not taking over her screen mouse and keyboard doesn't impact her. It's just doing my own thing kind of under the hood, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, so that's uh, so there's some cool stuff there, but this one, I, I just don't understand well, I think it's just an, it's an additional option. I think if you if you choose to take advantage of this Apple ID, which which helps you in in other ways, I haven't right. fully explored it, but I just noticed it. So cool. a couple of very quick ones. Go. So remember in, in a prior episode where I was griping about the fact that they changed the behavior of ac- the activity menu in uh, Safari, or before if you had the activity menu and you had, for example, a, a flash video .dot yeah. flv file before if you double clicked on it, it would download it. And then I found on the latest Safari, it doesn't do that anymore. Well, uh, one of my followers, I forget who it was, uh, told me the secret. You hold down the option key. Really? Yes. So they changed the behavior. Isn't oh, that great awesome. of them? Without telling anybody. <laughs> that's great, though. And then here's another one. I noticed in the latest version of Mail, so this is making macOS more iOS-like. I noticed this in the latest version of Mail. I got a shipment notification for something I ordered. And I looked at the tracking number and it was funny because as I hover my cursor over the tracking number, ooh, it got highlighted. That meant a data detector saw it. Right. And when I clicked on it, it said tracking info. And when I clicked on that, it opened up a little window, which I think is just basically a browser window and brought me to the UPS site and showed me the info for that. Now, from what I understand, that's been in iOS for a while. And I, I guess it just took a, I, I guess they're trying to merge the feature or the data detectors. Yeah. Um, in any event. And the last thing to close out here is I just tested this day and air radar, as far as I can tell, works just fine on Lion. Whoa. It didn't crash and I saw all the, ba- uh, all the base stations. So I don't know if they advertise. Well, they say, yeah, 10, four and above, right? Yeah. So, so I just ran it. So of all the Wi-Fi scanners that I have on my system here, this is the only one right now that seems to work. That's awesome. So Thanks for testing that. Kudos to them. Yeah, absolutely. I can multitask. And sometimes you can even pay attention while you multitask. Wait. What? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you have something cool to send in, or if you have a question of your own, you can email it to us at feedback at MacGeekCab.com. I'm totally with you on that, Dave, and that you want to send 
email to feedback at macgeekab.com. The beautiful part about feedback at macgeekab.com is that email comes to both John and I. Lately, there has been a rash of emails that I have been getting support questions, you know, macgeekab questions sent to just my Dave at uh, macobserver.com address. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, please send them to, to feedback for two reasons. Number one, if you send them to me at the Dave address, I, I'm probably going to file it as soon as I see it to the Mac Geek Gab thing. And, and then, but John doesn't see it, so you don't get the benefit of him providing an answer until I get uh, in the queue and, 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 you know, forward it off to him or whatever. Uh, so really, just, you know, send them to feedback at, unless there's only one reason you wouldn't send them to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. And that What's is that, Dave? <laughs> if you're a premium subscriber, 25 bucks for six months. It gets you two extra episodes a month. It gets you access to all the archives. It allows you to support John and I, which is one of the main reasons that uh, that you folks convince us to do the premium thing. And it allows you to email us at premium at macgeekcab.com. And for all of you premium subscribers out there, and the number is growing uh, very, very healthily, I would say, uh, thank you very much. John and I really appreciate it. Uh, if you want to call, there's one number for everybody. We sort it internally here. 206-666-GEEK, which John is 4335. That's right. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow Mac Geek Gab on Twitter at twitter.com slash macgeekgab. You can follow him at uh, twitter.com slash John F. Braun. I'm twitter.com slash Dave Hamilton. Mac Observer is, of course, slash Mac Observer. And uh, Pilot Pete, when he's here, even when he's not, he's at pilot slash Pilot Pete on Twitter. Uh, I think that uh, that does yeah, it. Facebook, Facebook.com oh, slash yeah, Mac Geek Gab. Yeah, we love that. Pe- people are starting to hang out there. Yeah, it's a, it's becoming a nice little nice little thing. It's nice because we can have threaded conversations. It's good. It's cool. When uh, the show gets posted, it, they have some magic detector that will show that. So, if, uh, well, I, I typically go to iTunes or MacGeekGap.com, but if you want to see when the show's posted, I think it'll eventually appear on that page as well. And then when the show notes are posted, those go to the Facebook page and also to MacGeekGap Twitter feed. Right. Right. Cool. Uh, Michael Johnston, I mentioned before, he hosts the We Have Communicators podcast. He converts all this to AAC for probably about 90% of you. For those of you, and just this is worth explaining because we, we've been getting more and more questions about this, which means it's time to re-explain it. John and I are recording the show now. Uh, when, as soon as we finish, I'm going to convert this to MP3 and publish it. And then... I'm going to send the uh, copy of the show to Michael Johnston for him to convert to AAC and add all the chapters and all of that stuff. That takes usually somewhere between 24 and 48 hours. More often than not, it's on the short side of that. But, uh, but it can take up to two days for that to, uh, to happen. So when you see us post the show, it means the MP3 version is out and that the AAC is now in the queue to be created. So if you want it, if, if timeliness is more important to you than chapters and all of that stuff, you can subscribe to the AAC feed, uh, sorry, to the MP3 feed at MacGeekGab.com. There's instructions there for how to do that for both premium and regular members. If you want to stick with the AAC, that's the one that's available in iTunes uh, for regular. And then, of course, premium members, you got to go to MacGeekGab.com anyway, because that's how that works. But it'll work in iTunes, uh, the premium membership as well. The, 
Yeah, go. The only other option is to track us down and sit in. No. No, no, don't encourage that. That's bad. That's bad. Well, maybe we That's should bad. have an ultra premium membership. No, no, for you. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't have that much room in my in my yard here. Uh, I'd love to have you all in the yard. Maybe I, was, I keep thinking each year, each summer, I keep thinking, you know, we've got to do like some sort of, it would be regional, you know, something here in, in, uh, in the Northeast, but, but some sort of, you know, Mackie Geb style gathering. So, you know, I, I had several people saying that they would be willing to even chip in if, if I did a little, uh, I'm going to call it a barbecue. I'm going to be a Northeaster and abuse the term, but have a little outdoor event. Throwing meat on the grill, or you know, we'll throw veggies for you that don't burn into. But no, I had several people write me saying, "Hey, I'm in yeah. Connecticut, or I'm close by, or I'm you know, I'm in New York City. I'd be willing to, to stop by and uh, and hang out for a few hours." Yeah, you know, I got we'll a deck. I got a. Yeah. We won't post it today, but we'll um. Well, let's see if we can let's see if we can put something together. We'll we'll we'll, we'll, ga- we'll ga- gauge some regional interest and see see what it, see what makes sense to do. All right, uh, the podcast marketplace includes, of course, the A5 speakers from Audio Engine. Barebones software with BB Edit and Yojimbo, disc label from Smile, and of course, Gazelle. Uh, at gazelle.com. Great place to get rid of uh, all that other electronic stuff and turn it into cash. All right, John, that's it. All through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. Let's go. Where are we going? Well, we're we're uh, we're we're gonna go do whatever we're gonna do for the rest of the week, and uh, they're gonna go. Well, they've now listened, uh, so there's a little time shifting happening there. And then we're gonna come back on uh, on Monday the twenty second, I guess. Have fun. Uh, don't get caught.